Romans chapter 1. I'm going to, I'm going to begin right in the first verse and just read some of this leading to my main verse. Um, and so this is a significant message for me for a couple of reasons. I don't know how it's going to come off. I could tell you this, the significance with which I felt the Lord placed this on my heart was heavy and uh, it, was, um, it was intense. I was up almost all night. One night, I went to bed as normal. I was reading. I was trying to fall asleep. There was nothing particularly spiritual happening to my knowledge, but then to, the best way of putting it is the hand of God just came on me. And I just began to get this download of his heart regarding the establishment of his kingdom on the earth. And I was up, like I said, most of the night I probably went, finally went back to bed or asleep at four. And, um, you know, I, I lay there in bed just underneath this deluge from the Lord speaking to me about his eternal purposes and what it's supposed to look like in a city, or at least getting toward that vision of a city version of God's overall purposes. And uh, I, you know, I, then I, I got up, I went into the closet so as not to bother my wife, which unfortunately did not happen, but still I tried. I gave it the good old college try. And I just literally, in my, co- in my, in my bathroom closet, so that I could meditate and pray, and really the only thing I could bring myself to, to say when there were words coming out was establish it, establish it. So just turn into a prayer. The burden of the Lord, I believe he gave me a piece of his burden with understanding. And I was praying it back to him. And so that's, that's basically the theme and the idea of this morning is this issue of establish it. That's what, the way I was praying it. And if, if this message had a title, it would be establish it. Establish it, establish it. I believe this is a current prophetic message to our work. I believe God's saying it to the body of Christ today for those who will hear it. He wants us to establish His kingdom. You may be like, no, duh. Well, it was duh to me. It was, a, it, was a, it was something I've preached on before, but not with this much clarity in my heart. I don't know if I'll speak it with this much clarity, but I felt more the burden. I felt more ownership of what God is up to and what my requirement is to make it happen on the earth. And it ain't cheap. It's the requirement of the Lord. He awakened me to the reality, though I already knew this theologically, He awakened my heart further to the fact that I don't belong to myself. I belong to Him. And that wasn't just a devotional thought. That became practical reality. I felt the pressure of the Lord on me. My obligation on my side of the new covenant. The Lord is speaking to us to co-labor with Him. To establish His kingdom. And to bring His eternal purpose. The eternal purpose that will close out this era. The age of mixture. Where God's kingdom is breaking into our world. But there's also evil and sin. We are not living in the resurrection age. We are raised up to new life in the Spirit, but we don't have new bodies yet. We believers look like unbelievers, physically speaking. We have the same constitution in our physical bodies, but one day we won't. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise. We shall be changed, right? 
With this, Paul says in Philippians 3, with the exertion of his power, the same power, it says, with the exertion of his power will be resurrected. With the same power he has to subject all things to himself. So the power that he exerts to eliminate all evil and to renew heaven and earth and to integrate them under one government, that's the power that will come forth to raise our bodies so that our bodies will be compatible with the eternal environment where nothing is outside of the government of God. That's His purpose. That's what's coming. We are working toward that purpose now. And we are called to manifest a measure of that purpose now in our city. And the Lord has put His finger on us and saying, okay, are you doing this or not? Are you doing this work that you've called apostolic? Good for you. You're doing a house church thing, not just because it's house churches, but for a certain purpose, because it expresses the kingdom. Are you doing this or not? I'm like, yes. I'm like, well, then let's do this. It's been somewhat preparation up to this point. I, I feel like our work, and I know we have, it's, it's, it's ironic to me, and and very warming to my heart. We have lots of people here who have either never been here or not been here often. You're either visiting or you're part of the work that uh, you're a a group that's, I think, loosely related and becoming more related to us. So we're we're still hashing that out. But but the point is there's one church in the city anyway. And we want to have jurisdiction from the Lord in our sphere of ministry to strengthen this. So it's interesting that I have such a message Today when we have a bunch of visitors. So do it with it what you will. God's purpose is to establish His kingdom on the earth. One day that will, be, that will happen in every way imaginable. It will be physical and it will be political. There will be one government. One king. One city is the capital of the whole world. The New Jerusalem will come down on Mount Zion and will physically fill earth and heaven with the glory of God. There will be kings on the earth still. They will be subjected to King Jesus. They'll be co-governing with him. I believe that's a reference to us. These kings will bring their glory into the city. This is real. This is going to happen. This is not myth. God created the earth that he might one day glorify it fully to match the glory of heaven. And the two will be integrated as one creation the tabernacle of God, and He'll be expanding His rule from there, and we with Him. That's the eternal purpose of God. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is not just the way people get saved. It certainly is the way they get saved. It's the Gospel of salvation. But it saves not because it only saves. The Gospel of the Kingdom is the announcement that God has won the victory necessary to accomplish the purposes I just described for you in brief. And because human beings are at the center of God's purpose, we had to be saved in order to enter His kingdom purposes. So that's the era we live in now. We get born again, we get the Spirit, and then we enter community that establishes the kingdom on the earth in a manner like what's going to happen, but not yet in its fullness. But still, that's what God is after. So we look at Romans chapter 1 here. Verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Sorry, I have to stop already, but I planned it, so don't worry. I won't be that distracted by every verse and every word. This phrase, Christ Jesus, is something we have to take seriously. Christ is not Jesus' other name. 
or his nickname. And it's not merely his last name. Like we have that in our heads implicitly and subconsciously. This is just the Christian American God's last name. Christ, Jesus, we just use them interchangeably. And of course, they can be used interchangeably in as much as they refer to the same person. But when Paul refers to Christ, which he usually does, it's either Jesus with Christ or Christ by itself. Sometimes it's Jesus by itself, but not usually. Usually, the idea of his being Messiah is what's prominent in his thinking and therefore is coming out of his mouth as he's dictating this letter. This is a reference to the fact that Jesus is the king of Israel. He's the king of Israel. He's the Messiah. Messiah means deliverer, but more than deliverer, he's anointed to be the king. So for our American ears, it would actually be a better translation, not really, but kind of mentally, to say, Paul's saying, I'm a bondservant of King Jesus. He's king. When, When you see the word Christ, that's a reference to royalty over Israel. Jesus is Lord of all nations because he is king of Israel. He's first king of Israel. That's what qualifies him to rule the world. Because Israel is God's nation. And what Paul is saying is, look, this, the kingdom that was promised to Israel finally came. It came in a fashion we did not expect, but came it did. The king took a form and he administrated a ministry that we didn't expect. We thought it would look different. We thought it would be political right up front. We thought we'd be established as a nation politically right away. And the Gentiles would be dealt with. And all these oppressors over We thought that would happen first. None of that happened, but the kingdom still came. So forever, Paul is confessing in these letters, Jesus is that king. Jesus is king. He's king. He's king. And by virtue of being king of Israel, he's lord of the nations. So when Paul catches this vision and he understands that the kingdom has come, he's like, well, now I get it. Now I, I see what the kingdom looks like. Now I can see it. And the promises that he would rule the world have now an application. I'm taking this gospel of the kingdom of Israel to all the nations any Gentile can believe and come into the commonwealth of God's salvation without any difference being Jew or Gentile. None of that matters. It's a whole new way of doing kingdom. But it is that kingdom nonetheless. That is the way Paul is identifying himself and his gospel at the beginning of this letter. It's very specific. Christ Jesus is not an American term. It is a Jewish term, and it's a royal term. Paul is a slave of Messiah King Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel is the story announcement that that kingdom has come. The promises are fulfilled. And every and any person who believes can become a beneficiary and citizen of that kingdom. Praise God forever. Amen. That was the closure of my preface. Now for my introduction. He promised this gospel in verse 2 beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son. Jesus is the centerpiece of the good news. He is the good news. The word Son, is there's two things going on there. It brings in The reminder that we're talking family. God's government always comes through family. It does not come through politicians. And everybody said amen. Career politicians are not meant to bring God's kingdom to earth. It will never happen. 
Real government comes through family structures, family realities. The Son of God term is a reference to Jesus being king, just as much as Christ is. Because if he's God's son, it's, 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 it's Psalm 2. He says to the king that he installed on Mount Zion, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Family rules. He was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. You see the allusions to the royalty again, right? David. These are what's on Paul's mind. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. Yeshua, the Messiah King, our Lord. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom all you dudes in this gigantic capital city of the empire, Rome, are the called of Jesus, the Messiah King. So this is our context. He's writing to the saints in Rome, the great city of the great empire of their day. Verse 7, to all, and this is to prove what I just said, here's verse 7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Saints, 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 holy ones, people set apart, amen, right, amen, holy ones, they're sanctified, they're holy by virtue of the gift of God in the Holy Spirit and their um, Their behavior is holy. They're sanctified. Paul is fond of the word saints. He calls Christians saints often. But one thing uh, interestingly absent from this introduction, which is normally present in Paul's other letters, is the word church. He usually will say hi to the church. Even in 1 Corinthians, when he says hi to the church, he still says they're called saints. You are called saints to the church of God in Corinth, called as saints. To the church of God in Corinth, called as saints. He still has that word ekklesia in Greek, kahal in Hebrew. There's the idea that there is a community of faith that Paul is always addressing in the epistles, but not in Rome. In Rome, it's just to the saints. Now, one of the reasons is probably because Rome is such a massive city, there's not one Uh, or two house churches that meet together and know each other, they're probably spread out. There's probably lots of Christians in this city. Paul did not plant the church in Rome. It was already there. But Paul is still writing his largest epistle to this massively big group of Christians in Rome. He didn't plant this church, but he still feels an urgency about writing to them, in fact, what could be his most important and definitely his lengthiest letter. So that's significant. He does not address the church, but he's going to pour out the most information to this group. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. So these are real saints. They're born again Christians. And not only do they have a genuine faith, but it's a famous faith. The reputation of of the saints in that city, is so dynamic, it's worldwide and gives other Christians encouragement. Because they're right in the place where they lop people's heads off for being Christians. 
Claudius had already evicted all the Jews from the city. And by this time, the Jews were probably returning and some of them had gotten born again. And you got all these Messianic Jews with all these Messianic Gentiles infiltrating this city. And the report is going out. It's like, praise God, there's a move of God in Rome. God's doing something. He turned things around. So it's great encouragement to others. Verse 9, For God whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of His Son is my, wit- is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers making request. So, how seriously do we take Paul? He never stops praying for the people of this city, the believers of this city. Never. He never stops praying for them. And we specifically hear why. Again, verse 10, he repeats always. So in verse 9, unceasingly I make mention of you. Verse 10, I always in my prayers make requests. Now what specifically? What's your request that you're always praying for? And what's your urgency that you never cease to pray for them? That I might at last, by the will of God, may succeed in coming to you. I constantly pray pray for you. Constantly praying for you. That I might hook up with you in Rome. And then he gives a little bit of his reason. No, actually he gives a lot of his reason in verse 11. For I long to see you. So there's an emotional reference. I'm praying constantly to hook up with you. And I long to see you. Okay, it wouldn't be nice. Can you have me come? I've had, not many, but one person you know, contact me, or a couple, can I come preach at your church? I'm like, what, is this a circuit? This is a business, right? Can I come speak? And then other people want me to reference them to somebody else. And it's like, this wasn't what Paul was about. It wasn't the, the American circuit where you just go to different, uh, you go to different churches and that's your career. He's not longing to them, longing to see them, because he wants an offering and another shot at some ministry in a big city. He says why he longs to see them so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. And this is the word that I believe the Lord is speaking to us today. You may be saints in the city, but you're not yet established. Paul recognized the city of Rome had saints in it. I think he avoids the word church here at the beginning because he wasn't quite there yet. To use that word. Because though he did not plan a work there, though he did not bring the gospel there, he recognized the work that had happened there and occurred there. It it, it brought saints into the city. Christian influences in the city. But the kingdom had not been established in the city. Because they had not been established in the city. So what Paul is saying is, as he's already recognized, Paul's saying, I'm an apostle and I have a vision for this. I have an understanding of it. And my goal is not just to get people saved and let them have a little lollipop service so they can meet together. My goal, an apostle would say, is the same goal as God in His eternal purpose and the same goal as Jesus when He was in the flesh on the earth that we read about in the Gospel. My goal is to establish the kingdom of heaven in your city. And just because there are saints there does not mean the kingdom is established there. Because the kingdom's not established there if the saints aren't established. When the saints are established, then I'll call it church. I'll call it ecclesia. Otherwise, you could slap it on your church building 
and fake yourselves out. And the powers of the air over the city are never intimidated because the, the, the government of God is not what's established in the city. It might be established in individual souls, but it's not established in a citywide manner because the church hasn't embraced the kingdom. Because to take that step is costly. Just letting you know, this is what kept me up all night. I hope you enjoy the message, but if it costs me a night's sleep, you're going to get the full extent of it. Come on. Not all those hours, that's not what I mean. But the intensity of it. Now, the intensity of it intimidated me into a corner. I'm not worthy or strong enough to live up to the things that God put on my heart. But I'm not afraid because he's given me his spirit for that. And a little thing called grace, praise God. But still, it's a little bit overwhelming. Now, Paul qualifies it. It's not like, oh, it's just about me. You're going to encourage my faith also in verse 12. That's very real. He's already said how their faith is famous, and there's good reason for that. Some of these saints are probably keeping the faith at the risk of their necks. Probably some of them with family members that have already lost their lives or been in prison. So Paul is looking forward to being refreshed in his spirit by them. But his main purpose is not for his honorarium, and it's not so that he can get encouraged. His main purpose is because he knows he's an apostle that brings a vision that they have not been brought yet. They haven't been completed yet. They haven't, they haven't laid a stake in the city yet. And few cities have in our day also. Paul knew this. It's not just about getting people saved and even starting to get them disciples. It's about establishing them because when they're established as a community, not just as individuals, because I'm sure every person here is established in your faith and there's families established. But what I'm looking for is an ecclesia that's established that will thereby embody the community and address the powers of the air without having to talk to them. But rather, the Ephesians 3.10, there's the demonstration of the manifold wisdom of God to the authorities and powers of the air because the kingdom is established in the church. It's a step we have to dare to take. And that's the nature and the burden of this message. This word that he uses for established, it means in a Greek dictionary, and I think obviously this is accurate, or I wouldn't mention it. It's, it's to fix something firmly in place. I think you get the idea. That's a, that's a great, vivid definition. To fix something firmly in place. And I like that image. I know the Spirit is, is communicating this to us. I want, I want you, I believe the Spirit's saying, I'm paraphrasing, I want you to get this image in your head. Your meaning of life is, is not just to float through and be a Christian and you know, whatever, we'll get to that. It's to, it's to fix his kingdom on the earth. It's to fix it on the earth. This isn't the, the, this isn't the final version of the kingdom. I'm not saying we take over things politically. I don't believe we do that. I believe we can influence. I can believe... I believe that could be one of the effects of the kingdom being established. But it doesn't have to be. It may, it may influence government structures, and I hope it does. It may influence them positively. It may influence them negatively, and we get persecuted for it. I don't think that'll happen now, but I don't know. But that's the, those are the versions you get when the kingdom is established in different parts of the world. The, the gov- there might be some laws that conform in society, we hope, and there, we don't have that guarantee. It might not happen. Our goal is always the same, though. Establish the kingdom. 
That's our calling. Establish it. That's what I was up all night saying over and over again. Establish it. That's what I was saying during most of our worship. Establish it. Establish it. And that's the title of this message. The word means to set up. It means to cause to be inwardly firm or committed. To confirm. To establish or to strengthen. The word was used when Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. Do you remember that reference in Luke chapter 9? After he got to a certain point of his ministry, he realized now's the time. The rest of my ministry will be consumed by traveling to Jerusalem. And all the ministry I conduct will be along the journey going to Jerusalem. Okay, Luke's gospel is mostly a journey to Jerusalem. It starts in chapter 9. It says when he fixes his face toward Jerusalem. Now, isn't that interesting? Jerusalem is his final point. That's the city of the great king. That's where he's going to die and bring the kingdom. That's where it's going to happen. That's where his blood's going to go into the earth and it's going to be established. So he, it says, and the word that Luke uses is, he established his face toward Jerusalem. Same word as the one used here. He established his face. Man, for believers whose faces are established toward Jerusalem, whether you, I mean that somewhat literally because we have a burden for Israel. Because if we're interested in the kingdom, we have to be interested in Israel. Or spiritually, figuratively, and both work simultaneously. My face is fixed. This is where my face is. I don't just want to be a nice Christian in my uh, culture that allows me to do so. My face is set. My face is established in the purpose of establishing his kingdom on the earth. That's my life. That's what I live for. When I spoke a month or two ago out of Romans 15, we talked about rallying around the cause. And Paul starts that passage by calling different Christians basically to get along, to um, not live for themselves, but to live for one another. Because what was going on in Rome, the community of faith there was not getting along very well. It's not just that they were fighting. We don't even have a lot of data telling us there was division. In comparison to 1 Corinthians, there was division. It's there implicitly in Romans, but it's not as strong, even though they weren't socially melted together and harmonized in the Spirit. Why? Because people were getting saved of such vastly different backgrounds they were having a lot of trouble worshiping together and getting on in family-type communities. Especially these Gentiles who are just, just living moral lives, but they don't have this entire code and set of customs like the Jews did, who didn't bring in all this baggage of wor- worshiping idols and having all these moral problems. I'm sure they did, but it wasn't of the same manner as the Gentiles. And for the Jews, it's like, well, if this is our Messiah King, then carry on with circumcision. Carry on with Sabbath. Now we're really flying. Let's do this thing. Kosher, man. We need need all these Gentiles. Like, who cares about all that? Just worship God. I mean, he just, all Paul said, or whatever apostle came, just said, believe. And the Jews are like, ooh, man, what are you about? I mean, you tattoo freaks with your drinking beer out of a skull and all that. 
you're coming out of that lifestyle, and we were these nice, clean Jews, we're the covenant people, shouldn't you be conforming to our customs? And Paul's saying, actually, no, the Gentiles don't have to conform to your customs. They don't have to do that. But neither do you Gentiles need to be fussing with them about them keeping their customs. Because something greater than both of that has occurred in your midst. It's called a new creation. It's called the kingdom. So you have to do more than just put away your differences. What does it say at the end of our passage in Romans 15? I'm sure you remember Romans 15. We preached out a couple of months ago. Uh, with one voice we glorify God. See, they, they weren't finding one voice because there were such vast differences. There may not have been fighting, but there wasn't harmony because harmony cost them something. So Paul looks and says, ah, I got two things to tell you. Number one, you're not established. Because if you can't get this right, you don't understand the gospel. Which means you're not established. There's no kingship of Jesus in Rome facing that monster that, that hovers over Rome. It's not there. Because the way you guys are relating to one another, you may not be fighting, but there's not a, there's not a, there's not a covenant community. It's a, it's a convenient community. But it's not covenant. And so you can carry on and be your nice Christian all you want, but you're not touching Rome. You're not going to bring the kingdom there. You're not going to establish it. So Paul says, number one, you're not established. And number two, here's my gospel. <laughs> and he preaches the gospel all the way through chapter 11. He says, let me remind you Jews who think the Gentiles have to conform to your customs. And let me inform you Gentiles who think you should be criticizing the Jews for keeping customs. Now, they shouldn't be doing it for the sake of salvation or sanctification, but if they want to keep their identity, more power to them. The point is, something greater than all of that has occurred, and how do we know that? The gospel. You have enough gospel to be saved, but you don't have enough gospel to establish the kingdom yet. And that's all that we're about, says Paul. So a key premise, as you've heard me say now ten times, a key premise in my message and what I'm trying to get across is that God's entire goal in history is to establish His kingdom on the earth as it is in heaven. That's a key premise. It's something we have to fix our eyeballs on and not take them away. God's goal is to establish His kingdom on the earth as it is in heaven. Is that, is that coming off clear? Somebody nod at me. Somebody wave and say amen. That's why Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, let it be sanctified, your name. Let it come, your kingdom. Let it be done, your will, as in heaven, so also on the earth. That's why, that's why we pray. We pray God's eternal purpose. The version of what it's supposed to look like now, we pray that. And the version of what it's supposed to look like then, we're praying for that too. We're praying for both. This is God's goal. And he wants everyone on board with his eternal purpose to establish his kingdom on the earth. There's a not yet mode of the kingdom that we talked about, the city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Isaiah chapter 2 is another Old Testament reference of what God's eternal purpose looks like. Come, let us go up to the mountain. In fact, let's turn there. I'll show you the language really quick. Isaiah chapter 2. Why not look at more Bible? I won't skip it for time's sake. We'll look at a few passages. It's only 11.45. We have plenty of time. Everybody let your hearts be settled. I have at least till 12.15 because that's two hours from when we began. 
word which Isaiah, the son of Amot, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established. Does your Bible say established? The mountain of the house of the Lord. The word mountain is a metaphor. It's literally Mount Zion, but it's a metaphor for kingdom. That's, that's basically what they thought in the Old Testament. They thought in terms of God being the God of creation, the God of kingdom, the God of covenant. That covers everything. Everything, All their language fits into that. We think religiously. We think, oh, the temple, it's a religious place. The temple is the palace of the king on the earth. And kings make covenants with their people. And God's covenant is he would dwell among them. So the temple is the king's palace among his people. It's, it's a kingdom frame. It's not a religious frame. It's not a theology frame. Theology fits in. The, the, the concept was kingdom and covenant. This mountain will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. You see that? That's a metaphor for one day God's kingdom will be the, the dominant kingdom and all other kingdoms will serve that kingdom. So the, then the, the prophetic word says many peoples. You see that at the end of verse 2, all the nations, verse 3, many peoples will come and say, come on, let's go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between the nations. That's all kingdom talk. That's what kings did. They judged. He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and they'll hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Never again will they learn war. How will all this happen? Because the kingdom will be established on the earth. That's the not yet mode. The now mode is to establish the kingdom in the way that Jesus and the apostles established the kingdom in the New Testament. When the church is established, the kingdom is established. Only when the kingdom is established in the church of a city will that church have the kind of authority in that city to supersede the spiritual authority over that city. That was a lot of words. Did you, did you follow that? We have to be established to establish the kingdom. If we don't establish the kingdom, we don't confront the powers of the air and supersede that power in the city of Charlotte. We could talk about it all we want. We could pray all we want. If we don't establish ourselves here, we don't establish the kingdom. If we don't establish the kingdom, we don't swing that big gate open, which is God's will for this city. It's been prophesied over this city. But something apostolic has to come to define it, and then the saints have to get into it and say, we're in for that. I'm not saying it's not happening in the city. I'm not saying it is. I don't know for sure. But it doesn't feel that way when I preach in the area on this side of the border between Charlotte and Concord. It feels different. And I know what God has been speaking to me. And I know that I'm releasing this word now. I submit to you that this is the highest, greatest, and most powerful expression of God's kingdom on the earth in the present age. This is it. When the church embodies the established kingdom as a genuine family on mission. I'll read that again because I wrote it in red in my own notes. And it's not because I think they're the words of Jesus. It's just to highlight it. I'm not taking my notes that seriously, but seriously enough to highlight them and read it twice. Here, I'll read this one again. 
I submit to you that this is the highest, greatest, most powerful expression of God's kingdom on the earth in the present age. When the church embodies the established kingdom as a genuine family on mission. This is why the issue of church is so important to me personally. It's not because I'm nitpicking and it shouldn't be like this, it should be like that, like I'm just complaining about the system. I have problems with the system and when people conform to the structures of human wisdom and politics and call it church. I have a problem with that, but I don't have an agenda that makes me nitpicky and critical, and therefore I'm trying to define something different just for the sake of criticizing somebody else. That's not why I'm interested in church. Nor am I just trying to be unconventional. Nor am I just into the house church thing. We could even do it differently than house churches. We could if we wanted to. We could. The issue is not plan house churches Primarily, the issue is to establish the kingdom. I believe the Spirit gave me direction. I don't understand how else to do it, to get God's people activated. Not that it's happening all the way yet, but I don't know any other way to do it. I'm not going to go to the other paradigm, because I think that stumps it, but that's just my view. And I believe the Spirit has instructed me in that way. We even tried to start these larger meetings earlier, and the Spirit spoke to us and says, not yet. You'll just default to the big meeting. Do something that activates God's people. So we stuck with our plan. We waited till September, the day of 714. Charlotte 714 was our first big meeting. We tried to start in February, and the Spirit spoke prophetically and said no. Thus the importance of prophecy is confirmed in the mouth of two or three witnesses, giving us self-direction on the ground. In any case, I'm not... I'm not interested in defining the church for all these reasons, because I'm unconventional, I'm nitpicky, I'm critical, or I'm just into the house church thing. The reason why I'm interested in the church is because I'm interested in the kingdom. And the, the, the church is the only vehicle of the kingdom of God on the earth. No other human entity, not even a, a, a natural family, can establish God's government in the new covenant. It must be spiritual family. Becoming family. Now, I'm not, I'm not diminishing the importance of natural family. The strong families make strong churches, amen, and all of that. But the end all is not the natural family. The end all is the spiritual family because that's what establishes the kingdom. That's why when they said to Jesus, you know, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside, he says, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? And he didn't deny his natural family. Some of his brothers became main leaders in the church. His mother, he made sure she was cared for by one of his disciples. By the way, he didn't hand his mother over to a natural brother. I'm just saying. To a spiritual brother he did, but he still said, take care of my mother. So it's not like he was, he was, it was, you know, he was not forsaking the natural family model. But it was not the end all. The natural family model does not establish God's government on earth. Not fully. The spiritual family does. Because the spiritual family requires more. You have to see one another after the spirit to be family. It's, it's a little easier. I was going to say it's very, it's very easy in my family experience and probably in yours to think family with my family because I love them. I see them as family. But Paul says we have to see one another after the spirit because it's more challenging to see one another as spiritual family. That's what requires the perseverance that Paul mentions in Romans 15. And that, I'm hinting toward this, I'm almost about to say it, that is what establishes a church, and that's what establishes the kingdom. It's when the spiritual family becomes 
the temple of the Lord in the city. So here's another key premise as I'm getting to my, uh, my, the heart of my point. I've already hinted at it. Moving right along. Let me give you another key premise where I'm coming from. All right? Is that me? It's possible to demonstrate God's kingdom without establishing it. Pretty important point. Did I, was my dramatic pause effective? Were you guys like, I don't know, oh? Because <laughs> at first you're just you know, letting it pass on by, but then he paused. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll say it again. It is possible to demonstrate God's kingdom without establishing it. We can't establish without demonstrating it. We must demonstrate. That's non-negotiable. This is why if you want to think kingdom, we have to come to grips with exactly what, what Mike Lubo prophesied when he was up here. Jesus didn't just talk about the kingdom. He demonstrated it. It's got to be demonstrated. It doesn't ever get established if it's not demonstrated. And the way Jesus and the apostles demonstrated it, one of the ways, they taught, they preached, that was demonstration, and they healed the sick, and they raised the dead, and they cast out demons. That kingdom has got to fly through. It's got to happen. It's got to come through. It's got to be demonstrated. And Jesus himself did those things. But his goal was not to demonstrate the kingdom. His goal was to establish the kingdom. That was always his goal, and he articulated it. And here's the beauty of it. He was happy to demonstrate the kingdom to people's benefit, even if they did not establish it with him. Let them bear the fruit. Let, let them be touched by the Lord. He was happy with that. But that was not his goal. The goal of Jesus was not to demonstrate the kingdom. And he didn't teach his disciples that they should just go around demonstrating the kingdom. He taught them that they should, but that's not their goal. Any more than you're, if, you're, if you're told by the Lord to go travel cross country and take a trip to Sacramento. That's your goal. You don't think car, 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 or airplane. It's like, yes, we're on the plane. That might be an accomplishment for you if you have a bunch of kids, actually. But it's still not your goal. You have to have the plane or the car or the train. But your goal is Sacramento. I don't know why I picked Sacramento. That's where my wife was born. It's on the West Coast. Kingdom demonstration is non-negotiable, but that's the vehicle. The goal is the establishment of the kingdom. So it's possible to demonstrate God's kingdom without establishing God's kingdom. There's a lot of people today, especially in charismatic circles, it's one of their main missions in life, to release the atmosphere of the kingdom. I want to release the atmosphere of the kingdom. You like that? Kind of Willy Wonka. Release the atmosphere of the kingdom. And, and, and some of these folks are really gifted, even if they can be kind of flaky. Some of them aren't as flaky as others. You feel God's presence. People really get healed. Sometimes there's more hype than healing, but there's still, you know, things are happening. And, and they might not be, they may not have the capacity to do more than demonstrate the kingdom, but because we're so... In our culture, we tend to be more superficial and non-committal. We like the experience rather than the breaking that's required to establish something. So they're all interested in releasing the kingdom. But there's no interest in establishing the kingdom because that's harder. So another key premise to go along with that. What establishes God's kingdom on the earth? Covenant does. And there's no other way. Covenant with God. 
an implied spirit-created family covenant with one another. It's the only way the kingdom actually gets established. Otherwise, it's demonstrated, it's experienced, but it's not established. This is why America has so many Christians and so many Christian things, and there's the least Christian influence on the power structures. There's some good people speaking and addressing things, and it keeps things at bay, but there's not a lot of establishment. Because the church, even some of the best folks, they're just as fickle as the rest of us. Consumers who shop, rather than family members who plan. Come on, it's so. It's true. You know when Jesus established the kingdom? When he saw those cats, men in their nets? And there's already some kind of demonstration and influence going on. It was happening. He looked at them and he said, follow me. That's covenant. He wasn't just saying, do what I do. Because those crowds, some of them came, some of them went. They'd come and go. But you know, there were some, they yielded fully to Jesus in all their imperfections. They yielded to him. Peter said it. When a bunch of them left, you guys going to leave too? Peter said, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. It's one of John's wonderfully uh, famous, uh, favorite themes. But you know what he was saying in code? We belong to you, man. We're tied to you. We, we can't go if we want to. We have covenant with you. Yeah, you tell me a covenant message is popular in our culture. It's not. But I'm telling you that covenant is the only way to establish the kingdom. Paul looked at those Roman Christians and he said, now look at you. Your faith, you you've endured so much, your faith is famous. But you can't see the gospel for your customs as Jews or your criticisms of the customs as Gentiles. You can't see the actual gospel. Because if you did, you would have said, you know what? I'm with you on this. We're, we're in arms. And if the world sees a, 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 someone who's like an Orthodox Jew like you and a Gentile who is not converted to Judaism, standing in the same kingdom, arm in arm, in covenant relationship, live and die for one another, then people will be impressed. This is what Jesus, they'll be impressed in their spirit. This is what Jesus meant when he said, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. He didn't just mean treat one another nicely. He meant covenant. He meant you've been created to be a family or you don't understand the gospel. That's why we're hammering this thing here. Because church in our culture is based on a foundation that's anti-covenant. So we market our product to draw people so people can attend rather than enter into family relationships. Devoted love. You see the difference now. I just saw someone stand up with so much joy. They're spreading their arms in praise. That's what I saw in the, my, my, the, my peripheral vision. I thought someone is liking this. And then I thought, oh man, just a picture on the wall. Maybe next time. And for the millions of you listening by recording, there's a picture on the wall that I don't have time to describe. I'll get distracted. Think about it. I mean, think about all the examples of Jesus. How demonstration of the kingdom is non-negotiable. I've been in environments where the kingdom has been demonstrated and, and, and rocking through the place for months and years. But the kingdom never got established. How come revivals come and revivals go? Well, they come to demonstrate the kingdom. And they leave because it wasn't established. And there it is right there. There's your answer. If people, because you know what you've got to do to establish it? It's right here. On a level, ain't one of us are comfortable with. And I don't mean, I'm not talking about something anybody should be forced to do. I'm talking about something the Spirit creates. It, it is sacrificial. And it's inconvenient. And it is counterintuitive to our way of doing church. 
It's counterintuitive. It's, it's a level of commitment that every other, almost every other nation that has the kingdom manifest, they understand this is now my family by life or by death. Covenant with him is first, covenant with them is second. I'm not saying it's something you sign in your blood. I'm saying it's something the Spirit creates. If it's something forced, it gets cultic and controlling. We are against that. We're for liberty. But if it's avoided in the name of freedom, it just becomes something you attend. Only the Spirit can write covenant on our hearts. But it's about time we pay attention to that and stop pretending it's not there. The gigantic elephant in the room. This is why you can have spirit demonstrations for even years on end, massive moves of God, and then it gets worse later than it was at first. Because covenant never established the kingdom. It just let it fly right on through. The Holy Ghost, like a you know, big old dude riding a Harley motorcycle with a leather jacket with the sleeves cut off, and drives through, like I heard one preacher say, and he goes through and leaves this mess behind because nothing was established. Because the thing required to establish it is covenant, and covenant is costly. And that's where we draw the line. Ten lepers got healed. One got the kingdom established in his soul. Kingdom demonstration, non-negotiable. But we're happy with the ten lepers. Jesus' goal was the one. Because his kingdom is planned. And then he says, die, therefore. It got grounded. See that? He heals Peter's mother-in-law, rebukes the fever, touches her, the fever leaves. And you know what happens? This is just Matthew's little code language, the other Gospels. She gets up and serves him. It's implicit. It's not written explicitly. It's just little code. She, she's, she's, it's like the, the, you know, if you pull the thorn out of the lion's paw, he follows you forever kind of thing. This woman saw something more in Jesus than someone who just pulled the thorn out. She saw, this is the Lord, and I'm his now forever. In her soul, the covenant uh, established the kingdom. It's, it's natural. It's love covenant. That's new covenant. It's love. It's not something you have to do. It's something you're privileged to do. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, the great symbol of the covenant. Is it not the blood of the new covenant? God, the new covenant in my blood. God's making covenant with people. It's like we are family if you come to believe. The New Testament is then teaching and revealing what this covenant means for us practically. Take up your cross and follow me. In other words, what is Jesus saying there? I'm calling you to covenant relationship with me. We, we become, in one sense, in the deeper non-romantic sense, I mean, I don't deny that there's romance between the bride and the groom, but I don't mean it just there the way we understand it. I mean it deeper. But it's like you enter into marriage. It's that strong. There should be no divorce. Follow me, he says. Does this make sense now? This is what Jesus taught. It's like, okay, you guys that are going to the cities, like Mike read from, was it Matthew 10 you were reading from? He said, look, demonstrate the king. You've got to demonstrate it. Demonstrate it, demonstrate it, demonstrate it. There's no other way around that. But it's interesting, the missionary format was you find a family and you stay there. And if they receive you, you don't operate missionally in the rest of that village except from that family. Because ministry is not just, a, it's not your career. You're establishing something. That's our goal. You may not get it. They may say, get out of here. We, we don't want anything to do with that. Th that's not our religion. That's not good Judaism. Get that out of here. Jesus says, all right, take off. 
wipe off the dust. A few people got healed, we hope. You know, something happened. But uh, if, if, if they won't receive you, if they won't enter into this as a lifestyle, then you haven't established anything, and you can't force it on them. Carry on. Go to the next village. See, the goal was always to establish it. So why Paul looked at the Roman church and said, a lot of things to praise God for, but they don't get the gospel yet because they haven't been called into covenant with one another. So Paul's saying, I carry the gift set to create that. So I long to be with you so that I might impart some spiritual gift to you so that you might be established. Is this ringing now with clarity? You see where we're going with this. I can skip around a bit now. I've said a lot of this. Um, Romans 6. We won't, don't turn there. I'm sorry. Romans 6 and Romans 8. Paul explains the new covenant to the Romans. The new covenant is not you sign on the dotted line your blood. The covenant is you've been recreated and you now are obligated to walk in the Spirit. He uses the language of obligation in Romans 8. Yes, in the New Covenant, hear that hyper-grace preachers. We are under obligation, not to the flesh, but to sow to the Spirit. Yes, there is obligation. Now, the nature of the New Covenant is the Spirit is in my heart. The law is on my heart. So the motivation is strong. Like my covenant with my wife. I, I don't have to be reminded of the legalities of my covenant to keep it. I love her. I'm highly motivated to keep the covenant. To negate this and to cultivate this. To negate everything else, any other kind of uh, relationship with a woman, and right here. The love is there for that. But if the love were to be, for whatever reason, lost and spilled on the ground, those legal obligations are still there, whether I want to break them or not. It's the same thing in the New Covenant. We have the Spirit. It's our joy to serve the Lord and to obey. But the covenant is still calling us to obedience and in full surrender to the Lord away from every other kind of idol. Right? The Spirit creates it. So in Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks, maybe that's one we should look at. Shall we? Galatians 5, very quickly. Verse 13. You were called to freedom, brethren. Right? Galatians 5.13. Did I say 5? Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. I'm telling you, we read that, we're like, oh, that's nice. Through love serve one another. Do you hear what Paul's saying? That's covenant language. You've been liberated. You are part of the new covenant. You're free from everything bad. And you're bound to everything good. You know what, therefore, you should do with that, with that freedom? Not what all these dudes are doing today and, and, and saying you're so free in the new covenant, give your flesh every opportunity. They're basically saying that. A lot of them are. Some of them are. Paul's saying, no, you're in covenant with one another. Exercise your liberty by loving one another through service. That's covenant language. When Paul says, through love, serve one another, he doesn't just mean be nice, show some affection. He means your family now. In that context, serve one another. Looky here, verse 14. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Did you know the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is all in the context of community? Paul's saying a new family has been created. 
you're in covenant with God, you've been renewed. Now you have the power for covenant with one another without having to control one another. It's born of the Spirit. And I'm telling you, when that is exercised, that's what establishes a community, and that's what establishes the kingdom on the ground. Uh, The kingdom is not established if there's not covenant community. Verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. Look at this. I say walk by the Spirit, and you won't carry out the desire of your flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh... For these are in opposition to one another. Guys, look at this. So that you may not do what, what, so that you may not do the things that you please. There it is. He's not saying if you're a person of the Spirit, make a list of all the things you like and don't do those things. He's saying you are no longer, you are no longer able, you no longer have the right to live the, your life the way you want to live. That's the name. So I, God is saying to you, I've given you everything. I've given you everything. Okay? I've liberated you. You, you. you were damned forever. You were in bondage to sin. You're going to experience death. Your life was meaningless and fruitless. I've liberated you from all that. I've recreated you. I've made you brand new. This is for people who've made covenant with God. They've been born again. Okay? As a result, now, your life no longer belongs to you. It belongs to me. That's covenant. And I'm not going to try to to, to give you a bunch of products to attract you. I'm calling you into a life where now God says, you belong to me, and I'm calling you to belong to them. That's what he means by, through love, serve one another. doesn't mean just pick up a few extra chairs and like it. It means you're you're now connected to one another. So that you may not do the things that you please. Wow. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are no longer under the law. And all of that's covenant language, isn't it? The law, the issue in Galatia, Galatia, in these churches was circumcision, verse 11. If I still preach circumcision, etc., etc., why am I still persecuted? All right, so let's, let's bring this to something of a close here. The new covenant... The new covenant marker is baptism. Men are no longer circumcised as part of the covenant. That's the old covenant, the specific nation physically, that is not demanded in the new covenant. When we, it's a circumcision of the heart. It's something that happens by the spirit, conviction. We believe, and we come under God's, God's, uh, God's covenant, which means we come in his kingdom, and we're vindicated. We're justified by faith. What do we do to mark that occasion? That I'm no longer the person I was. I no longer belong to the gods that I used to belong to. And I no longer belong to the people. Not the same way. I no longer belong to the people that I used to. I now belong to this God and his people. How is that marked? It's marked by baptism. Baptism in water is the marker of the new covenant. There's not just baptism in water, just baptism. There's three baptisms mentioned in the New Testament. One is the baptism of water that, that marks that one is repentant. And that it is now in the spirit being raised up to newness of life. It marks that moment. If you've not been baptized in water as a new believer, you need to pledge your allegiance to Jesus. Baptism is a covenant statement. But, but it's dynamic. It's not signing a document. It's dynamic. It's like I, in my body, I'm dead to what I was. I'm alive to the new. That's why John was, was giving a baptism of repentance. Because repentance was stage one of covenant. It was entering the covenant. 
John says the kingdom is here. Well, the kingdom can be here without established. He, he wanted to establish it. So how did he call people to establish it? Repent. Turn away from self-ruled life, a, a, a sinful life, a, a religious life. Turn away from that and yield yourself to this, the, the God King, Yahweh and his Messiah. Yield yourself to, to this person. And how do I do that? To come into the baptismal waters and go under the earth and come up again. That's the first baptism. It marks a covenant. Now, now, in Psalm 119, the psalmist said, I have sworn and confirmed. So you enter the covenant. You swear to God. My life is yours. But then every day we confirm it. I'm yours, Lord. Whether implicitly or explicitly. I love you. You've commanded covenant to love the Lord your God. With my heart I have covenanted. That's the first baptism. And it marks that you've been... God's side of the covenant is He renews you and raises you up. You know what the second baptism is? The second baptism, I demarcate the two. The second baptism is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's not a Pentecostal experience. It's a kingdom experience. Jesus said you'll be immersed in the Spirit and you will receive power. Well, that's the fruit of it. You know the point of it is that we become... We enter into covenant with the Holy Spirit and He becomes our life. Baptism in the Spirit is not just an experience to make people look a little funny sometimes and believe in the extra stuff. Baptism in the Spirit is covenant. To me, that's covenant language. That's entering into an immersion. You see, immersion. All old ties are broken. I am now dynamically connected to God forever. The Holy Spirit is now my whole life. And thirdly, I don't know if uh, I have the verse here, but there's a baptism by the Spirit into the body, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And let me find that for you here. You know there's a third baptism where the Spirit, in verse 13, by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of the one Spirit. And that's powerful language. It's interesting that the baptism language, which is covenant language, crops up again. The Spirit creates Jesus groups that are family. And the, the word covenant is probably not even as strong as the word body. And if you're in a body, do you realize the strength of that word? When you're in a body, you're in loving covenant relationship. You're so connected, one, one can't even function fully without your part whether you're a liver or an eye or a small pinky toe or whatever, some of them seem so insignificant until you stub it hard. And then every member of your body will salute that little part of the body because that's how connected the body is. We use that just to refer to like those folks that meet together, the body. It's like, no, no, body is covenant language. And the Spirit creates a covenant people who who are brought together in love. And that is the way God will establish His kingdom in our city by creating an actual body, a covenant community of people who will, who are, who will say, yes, I'm going to do that. Because we, we, our, our culture sends the vibe of being fickle. If we have the bigger thing, if we have the, you know, the, the screens. and uh, There's churches that are big mega churches in our city that do awesome works for God. They can demonstrate the kingdom in a lot of cool ways. But they won't establish the kingdom unless they establish covenant communities. But you've got to gear everything toward family rather than marketing your product 
and putting the right scent in your building and making things to draw people to make sure everything's cared for so that they'll come. That's not the way you build big church. That's the way you big you build big conferences, but not the church. The church is a covenant family. We who know that to some degree, sometimes we're still reluctant to enter all the way in and just say, Lord, I don't know exactly what you're requiring, but I'm in. I'm not, I'm not a consumer shopping for a church. I'm going to be led by the Spirit into a body where you've called me and I'm going to be there as family. Or it's, it's not at all. I'll go where the Spirit's leading me. So no one's putting pressure on you to join this work. I tell you before the Lord, I have zero agenda. But I am telling you this. Where the Spirit is baptizing you, you're in covenant community. And I'm not going to carry the pressure to entertain you. I'm going to help equip you and create a space where you can be equipped. But I'm not, I'm just not good at marketing anyway. So I might as well yield to my strengths of not being good to drawing a lot of people. And organizing things so well. That ain't going to happen here. I need help doing that stuff. But I will create an environment that says it's going to be covenant or nothing. I haven't signed up. What I'm giving a try is not planning another church. That's why half the people that wanted to join me to begin with, I'm like, I love you. I, 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 I would love for you to come. But let's have some orientation first just so you understand where I'm coming from. You need to be honestly informed. This may not be right for you. It may not be time. And I'm not even giving, coming to this language until today. It is time for us to consider where the Spirit is baptizing us. And then we're in. That's why the word baptism is used. It's an immersion. And where we're in covenant relationship with the Lord and with one another, His mission will become our rallying point. The mission to advance and establish the kingdom will become a common rallying point. We will enter into a level of camaraderie, uh, camaraderie we've probably, uh, uh, rarely, if ever, experienced before. And I'm saying this all by faith because I'm, I'm walking this now, this journey, and this new dimension. In some ways, I feel for the first time. I feel like it's time for us to fast and pray. I'm not calling us to a specific time. I don't know when to do that. Not just about the community of faith, but about the focal point of mission for our churches. Now, you guys should minister however you're led. But I believe God will call this work to certain focal points that will rally people into a deeper relationship with the Lord and with one another. What we called a few weeks ago when I preached September, the rallifying, because it rallies us and unifies us. But I feel like that's a close second to this first issue. Where is the Spirit baptizing you? This is a life issue. This is a sacred, important question. And, and it may take time to process all the way through. And I don't even have a problem with visiting different places. I've encouraged people to do that. But the bottom line is, your relationship with the Spirit should determine what people, what Jesus group, He's plunging you into. And when that's defined... Your family. Now that takes time to cultivate. You can't try to do all that overnight. With, with the, the, the level of busyness that we have and the rawness that I feel a lot of us are coming from where this is foreign to us. So I'm, and I'm no cult leader and I don't, you know, I don't have all the tools to do this overnight myself. It's like we, but this is what Gene and I were talking about. I felt like it was from the Lord. Gene is speaking. is usually the same. No, just kidding. But when we were driving to a conference, she's like, you know, if we're going to do this, we have to do it. 
Because I could have planted a church another way and probably had enough people to listen to my preaching or whatever and be successful on that end and hire the right people to help organize everything else. And off you go. It's not hard to have a successful church. Maybe that's boastful. Forgive me if that's boastful. I probably could have done it if I had the right help. But if I could have, I wouldn't have wanted to. That doesn't feel real to me. It doesn't feel right. But the thing that is real to me, it takes sacrifice to have the kind of devoted relationship to get into. So Gina was saying, even though we've already basically been doing it, the it that I understood, she said, look, if we're doing this, we're doing this. If we're not, we're not. We're going to have to be all in, and we're going to have to exemplify it and embody it ourselves. And my response was, I know. So I'm encouraging you the same way. All right. This is the one primary practical way we bring God's eternal purpose to the earth. It's called establishing His kingdom. By discerning where the Spirit is plunging us into what community of faith. Something that you can't even really talk about in another country where they have none. But what's the Spirit creating in your life for covenant with Him and with one another? Be plunged in there. Be body and family. Stop being alone maverick, fickle Christian, or you're trying to this thing and that, you're going to... That, that, we, we, that doesn't establish the kingdom. And that's not the value set that we have. So find out what the Spirit's saying and doing, and then be plunged in on a covenant level. And you don't even have to use the word covenant if that sounds too strong. Just say love. Say devoted relationship. It's got to be born of the Spirit anyway, right? So that's what makes it healthy. Amen? And I believe out of that will come a clear direction for mission. And we already should be reaching out constantly and serving, and some of us already have areas. But I believe something is going to gel all the more because there's somewhere, somehow, the Lord is going to use what's established here to address the powers of the air over this city. And that's what we've signed up for, whether you've realized it or not. So let me pray for you as I close, okay? Even as we pause to pray, I feel like this isn't all or nothing today. It's all or nothing always with Jesus. But I feel like the Lord will be speaking to our hearts over the next several days and weeks. Some of you feel like I'm already in the relationship like this. Well, the Lord's going to help you cultivate it and go deeper and define it. Some of you don't have it at all. Some of you are somewhere in between. But the Lord's got to create this in our hearts. This is where the Holy Spirit comes in. We're baptized by one Spirit into one body and all cause to drink of the same Spirit. So, Father, thank you for that. Thank you that you treat us as children that you're raising in your house rather than employees that if we don't perform up to speed that you fire us. Thank you for that. We, We enjoy your love. We drink it in. We thank you for this kind of love that we are sons and daughters rather than slaves and employees. We thank you that even a word that is this ultimate and this all-encompassing is still something that you will train us in as good fathers train their children in the very things that they're demanding of us. And you will train us under the rule of grace by the power of the Holy Spirit rather than the rule of law and the power of the flesh. Praise God forever. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God. We, we look now, we fix our eyes on King Jesus, Jesus Christ, and Him crucified. We remember Him hanging on the cross. Paul would even say He's been publicly portrayed as crucified before you. 
And yet he's not still on the cross. He's alive from the dead. He's ascended on high and he's reigning in power. But he still bears the scars because he's always the covenant God. We fix our eyes on him right now. And Lord, we, we, we open up our hearts to you in a new way. We pray that you'll train us as sons. And you'll train us for covenant. And Lord, even as my own heart testimony before you and before this congregation. My own heart is intimidated in some ways by the very words coming out of my mouth. I don't feel nervous about being up in front of people. That's a blank to me now. Nothing. Because I'm before you and we're talking covenant. And I'm trembling. Lord, with that weakness, I pray that you'll create a strength by your Spirit. I can't do what your Spirit does, but I can say yes in covenant and let you bring me to my feet the way you commanded Ezekiel to stand to his feet, and then the Spirit entered him and caused him to stand to his feet. Do that to us. Breathe on us afresh, because covenant with you is not just a bunch of stipulations and laws. It's the breath of God inside of us, writing in our hearts. We invite you and open the door of our hearts. We say yes to you. Breathe away and write like a scribe on our hearts, this law of the Spirit of life in Messiah Jesus that has liberated us from the law of sin and of death. Direct us to those, the, those people and the work of whatever you're doing in our lives to, to make, uh, to, to, to walk out the covenant that you are creating, not that we create, but that we partner with you for. We do, do this work in our midst. And here's my prayer now to finalize this, Father. I pray with all of my heart I pray with every bit of anticipation and expectation, with a little bit of a hunch of knowing what you're doing in our midst. I pray, I hope, for these people, uh, for this precious congregation, and I hope in agreement with them, establish it. Establish it. Establish it. Lord, we need more kingdom demonstrations. We need a lot more. We pray for those too. But we pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Establish it on earth as it is in heaven. Establish it, Lord. Establish it. Put a, put a bullseye on Charlotte and touch our weak little hearts to be man and woman enough to be covenant in the Spirit of God, in the Holy Ghost, to, to be the means and the vehicle by which you establish your kingdom in this city. Establish it. Establish it. Establish it. Lord, I know even prophetically right now in this moment, you have, you have missional purposes for this city. You want to establish something here to raise a standard in, this, in the New South and to send people from this place as runners with a kingdom message for, for their sake establish it establish it some of you here you've been trained you've been a part of a fire before and I would submit to you you have a long history with us I submit to you that part of the purpose that God had you trained there and called you here is for this, this message not my message not my work but this message of the scriptures for establishing the kingdom through covenant and I encourage your hearts to really contemplate on what God's saying to you. I know that doesn't apply to everybody. In fact, only a few. But to those to whom it applies and the rest of us, let us consider in our hearts what the Spirit is saying. Father, we pray, establish it, establish it, establish it, establish it. And make us strong and protect our families. And provide our needs as we go for this. Jesus is King and Lord. In His name we pray, Amen. Amen.